0: Welcome to the Black Hereford Chronicles with Jen Hill. Here we discuss all things Black Hereford. Join me for in depth conversations and insightful interviews relevant to your Black Hereford operation. Is a giant in the Angus world. You might know him from Rischel Angus or as the originator of the famous New Design Cattle. Bill spent decades studying and perfecting Angus genetics and has been a mentor to more cattlemen than I care to count. When I was thinking about having the conversation about how cattlemen should study and think about EPD selection, I couldn't come up with a better person to talk to. In addition to EPDs, Bill talked a lot about carcass values and a lot about how what we do as seed stock producers impacts commercial operators, which of course are our customers and should really matter to us. But I think of all the interesting things Bill talked about and the importance he places in correctly valuing EPDs, it's vital that we realize that those honest, correct, functional EPDs will never come to fruition or matter if we don't have masses and masses of data. So collect and turn in your data, all of it. That's enough of my stump speech for today. Let's hear what someone much smarter than me has to say. I am here today with a couple gentlemen, actually. Um, First and foremost, I have Bill Rischel on today. And then we're going to be talking about EPDs and selection. And so I brought my husband, Logan, in because as a lot of you guys involved in the Black Herbert Association know, he's been really involved in the EPD process. And he's been through a couple different companies that the association has used to produce those EPDs. And it's just been something that he's been working on for a long time. So I thought that having his perspective in on this conversation would be great, too. But Bill, Bill Rischel, I'm really excited about. So I'm going to give him a minute to introduce himself and kind of tell us a little bit about his experience in the industry, and we'll start there.
1: Very good. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Appreciate that very much. Um, You have already introduced me by name. It's Bill Rischel, and spent most of my life in North Platte, Nebraska with uh, developing the Richel Angus program along with my wife and kids when they were still all at home. And so, uh, um, build a reasonably successful purebred Angus outfit there at North Platte.
0: You're being very modest.
1: And, uh, well, that's, that's better than sounding like I'd be bragging about it. So (laughs) that's, uh, that's the, a little of the history of it. We we did spend a great deal of effort since about 1986 working to really develop and ingrain outstanding carcass merit into that herd of cows and that program. And then got got to a point in time where we didn't have anybody coming home in the way of family for it. And we were very, very fortunate to Strike an arrangement, a deal with Trey and Dana Wasserberger, TD Angus, to take this thing over, and um, we are tickled to death that they have captured what we believe was was the essence of our program. By that I mean the what we believed in and the kind of cattle, uh, phenotypically and genomically, to serve the commercial beef industry. In the best way possible, and so today that herd of cattle is recognized as TD Angus at Rischel Ranch. So that's that's enough background on that. Let's get on to talk about what you want to talk about.
0: Okay, so we're going to focus in today mostly on EPDs, and you know, a year ago I would have described my first question here is pretty basic, but it seems like EPDs themselves and their value to the industry have become a little more controversial lately. And I think that's in part just a reaction to the sheer number of EPDs that exist out there now. But let's start at the beginning. Why do you believe that EPDs are important?
1: I believe that they're important by definition. EPD stands for expected progeny difference. And if we're ever Going to make improvement, and that's I'm talking about real genetic improvement with with these seed stock cattle. Um, we have to understand how EPDs actually work. They're based on the heritability of individual traits, and the the essence of that is that the more highly heritable a trait is, the more progress you're apt to make by selecting for that trait. And I think the other thing people should understand about EPDs is that each single EPD represents the given trait that it's identified to or attached to. And the EPD is a is basically a bell curve of where the population of that trait uh, exists within a particular breed of cattle. And you have to kind of understand that on the front end to realize that you basically have about three standard deviations on a given trait. And at the lower end of that trait, there's about um, two and a half percent of that trait in that first standard deviation uh, I should probably start from a little different angle. I think it'll be easier to understand, and that is that the mean of the trait of the bell curve would be right in the middle of the curve at the fifty percentile. And then going either side of that average or mean for that particular EPD or trait, you have approximately thirty about thirty five percent either side of the mean. So about 70% total in that one standard deviation. The next standard deviation is roughly um, about 25% total. So roughly 12.5% beyond that first standard deviation. And then The third standard deviation would be roughly two and a half percent of each side of the second standard deviation. So the further out to the bottom of that bell curve you go, um, the less the less power there is. Now, certain traits such as birth weight, some people are chasing to what I believe is an extreme. And therefore, they're going toward what I would call the bottom of the bell curve. And on the other flip side for growth traits, there's people chasing that way beyond probably what's practical and functional in lots of environments. And therefore, you're at the top end of that bell curve. You have to be really careful and try to understand that most Sire summaries have descriptive definitions and explanations with some graphs that would point out what I'm explaining here just verbally. I think it is very important that anybody who wants to really understand EPDs and understand the value of them really has to get that fundamental principle of that bell curve down and realize that it has to do with heritabilities and how much progress you can make. And always keep in mind that no matter how much progress you're making on whether it's an upside or a downside of that EPD, just remember that because of the heritability of that trade, if it's a high heritability, it's just as easy to go the other way as it is in a positive way. And you should realize that and realize when, when some people would say, like in, our, in my breed of Angus cattle, they say, well, I'm not worried about marbling. Said it's um Angus cattle have lots of marbling in them, and that's what they're known for. So I'm not worried about selecting for that. And I will say, well, if you really think you know, the the carcass traits such as marbling and ribeye are highly heritable, oh sure, yeah, some of the highest heritabilities we work with. And I said, so if you select for that trait, you can make tremendous progress. Well, absolutely, yeah, that's why. They say, well, that's why I'm not worried about it. Uh, Angus cattle have a whole lot of marbling to start with. And I said, well, did you ever think that if you can make progress to put more marbling in, that you'll, you'll lose marbling just as fast if you don't pay correct attention to it? So if you start just believing that it's just there rather than understanding that you have to constantly select, to get these traits to a position where you'd like to have them for your herd of cattle and that you can absolutely go the other direction just as fast as you can go in a positive direction. Uh, I, I I think that's really key to understanding about EPDs. You will make progress, but progress in changing the EPD can be positive and negative, good and bad.
0: So when you're thinking about those specific EPDs, like marbling or birth weight, which are two of the bigger ones that we see people focus on, why is it important to avoid just selecting for those, for that single trait selection? And really, you can even think about it phenotypically, right? What's wrong with hyper-focusing on one specific area?
1: Well, I'm going to take those individually. Um, for instance, birth weight, you just focus on birth weight. And let's say that uh, I'm I'm going to give you some of my personal beliefs here as we go along. My personal belief is that some breeds of cattle and I'm going to I'm going to really specifically point out the Angus breed here. And they are a major player in your Black Hereford deal. So I think it's important that your customers and people that might listen to this understand that an extreme selection toward lighter and lighter birth weight is going to be impacted uh, by gestation length. Number one, more than what I call true genetic birth weight. There is a true genetic birth weight and there's cattle that are nearly full term cattle in terms of gestation length that will be lighter birth weight cattle. And there's full gestation cattle genetically that will be heavier birth weight. I call that true genetic birth weight. But when you start talking about gestation length, the shorter that length gets, Obviously, the smaller the calf and therefore um, the lighter the birth weight. But I think we have to realize, just like in humans, at some point, lighter and lighter birth weight due to shorter and shorter gestation. you, You have to just be honest with yourself. And at some point, you have to call it premature calves. And that can have its own difficulties in terms of survivability, in terms of having enough body heat and enough uh, physiological shape and size to those calves when they're born to survive tough winters and tough conditions at calving time. So common sense should always prevail even when we're using really good data and good information and good EPDs to breed cattle we better tie it into some common sense and never lose track of that. When you start talking about carcass traits and marbling, there's uh, there's several different ways to look at that. Uh, I would say that ribeye is also an important part, the retail product in these cattle and what we call retail yield. And just so that everybody understands what I'm talking about, That's the same thing as what we know uh, of as cutability. Cutability by definition is the percent of closely trimmed retail product in the round, the loin, the rib and the chuck, which are your four major primals in this beef carcass. And so from that cutability percent, you get a yield grade, and those are from one to five, one being the leanest, five being the fattest. And that's an important component of how many pounds of edible product there is in this beef carcass. So ribeye is highly heritable too. The caveat in ribeye is that it's it's about been determined that ribeye is not a great um, tool, to actually use in that yield grade equation or cutability equation, it's not the best tool or the most accurate tool to really define real yield grade. It's just not as highly correlated to total lean as we'd like it to be. And meat scientists are figuring that out now and, and realizing that um, There's other. I think the industry should find other ways to try to determine the total retail product yield in these cattle. And uh, the you know the ideal method would be measure the round because the round's the most massive part of the meat in a critter. It's the biggest of all of the. If you take the rib and the loin and the chuck, now the chuck's pretty big as well, but the round would be a far, far better, more highly correlated total lean than the ribeye is. The reason that ribeye was designed to start with in that equation or used of it, along with hot carcass weight and fat thickness and ribeye size that goes into that equation is that uh, it was the easiest to measure and round is extremely difficult to measure. Uh, we we can't just scan that and then tie that into a total cutability equation, if you will. But it still is a very important thing to worry about in these cattle to have that retail yield. Uh, it has great value. Pounds pay the money in a carcass and pounds will always be an important part of value. So, uh, having said that, I just, I'm prejudiced to marbling when it comes to carcass traits because the marketplace is telling us we should be prejudiced to marbling. The fastest growing value in the carcass today is prime. The highest grade that we have, far and away, the fastest growing value in a beef carcass. And that's because. Beef as a product, we should all understand that it has to be pulled through the marketplace. You cannot push this product through the marketplace to purveyors, distributors, retailers, fast food. um, It has to be pulled through and it's pulled through by the end user, your consumer, that spends their hard-earned money to buy this product. And that's extremely important to always understand when you're trying to put value on a breeding program, is to remember that this this beef that we're raising has to be pulled through this system. That's absolutely key. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, what's what's causing this deal is the value in prime, high-scale restaurants, and let's not forget the export trade because export markets, are growing as as the world wide average income increases. Individuals in a lot of these foreign markets that we do business with and and do trade with are um, individuals in those economies in those countries like the taste of really really good beef, and that's U.S. corn fed beef. And it's there's no question that. We do the best job in the world of producing that product right here in the great old United States of America. So um, that's a that's a really big deal to keep in mind. Uh, who's your, who's your consumer, and where do they exist? And over the last several decades, we have constantly have seen an increase in demand for U.S. beef in a lot of foreign markets. There's been a few times in history, 2003, December, right before Christmas, when uh, spongiform uh, encephalopathy, which was mad cow disease that most people would recognize it by, uh, really became a problem in several countries. And we lost uh, a lot of market in a short period of time. And it took us about 10 years to get back to where we were before BSE happened. So um, let's always remember that uh, our markets and our, these foreign markets, these people are just like, we refer to consumers here in the USA, and it's really no difference. Consumers worldwide are the same. They want a very nutritious, safe and, and um, good product, high quality, satisfy their family. The nutritious value of beef is unique. Um, you, you know this is not EPDs Jennifer, but just the same, it's really important to understand that uh, white white people want to buy our product. there does there is not a a big enough, opportunity in the lower 48 states of this country anymore to expect that somehow we can greatly increase um, the amount of beef that we're gonna merchandise to consumers here in the United States. We, We should all realize that to grow our economy and to grow our operations and become more financially independent and successful in the cattle business both commercially and seed stock is to have this demand for this product that keeps us all in business. And that demand in the future, going forwards, 20 years from today, if your kids are going to have a chance to take over your operation, or whenever that point in time comes, you're you're still very young. But um, when when you get to that point and hope that you can turn something over to your, your family and your kids. We've got to, we've got to make sure we do all the things right that we can to have a great product. That's really well accepted that people understand is safe and wholesome and everything else about it. And so it's besides just EPDs, uh, the future of the industry and, and being able to, you know, like I say, pass it on to the next generation is really about beef demand at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with uh, what you're saying about marbling and how that affects our, our marketing ability locally and worldwide, both. Yeah. Um, just uh, going back on what you would said about the ribeye area, um, EPDs not being a high correlation to uh, actual beef product or yield grade on an animal, um, I've noticed that some bulls that you look at may have a really high individual ultrasound ribeye area, and uh, their EPD is really good, but they have a build kind of like a wagyu where their total yield product isn't great, isn't great and expressed in in the back end of their frame or even on the tuck, like you're talking about, but uh, but that ribeye is massive and bulging and and. They've got uh, your quality component in there, too. So it's kind of a, an odd combination of how you see selection on that one muscle affect how uh, how the animals are, are actually phenotypically expressed.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the other thing we should all keep in mind is that today due to muscle profiling work that, by the way, our beef checkoff helped to pay for and was one of the greatest gifts that just keeps on giving that this industry has ever produced in a way of research of our product. Just because of all the new, uh, uh, well, just name some of them, you know, everybody knows about uh, Sierra Cut, the Denver Cut and uh, Flatiron Steak and all that's the one that people hear about the most. And all of those steaks are individual muscles out of the chuck when that chuck is broken down and fabricated. And we found out that there's very, very tender muscles in that shoulder in that chuck that came out of all that research paid for by checkoff dollars.
0: So do you think there's any validity to the idea that focusing too heavily on those carcass traits, though, can lead to high maintenance costs?
1: I think I think we've got to be careful at every turn of a lot of these thought processes that we've had, some in the past and some still today. And we can get into that a little later as we go along here. But one one of the I think we can put way too much emphasis on ribeye more quickly than we can on marbling today based on what the marketplace is telling us. Number one is we still have purveyors and distributors that are telling us that many of these ribeyes are too big because they want a certain thickness in that stake and from an eating portion of an eight ounce or a 10 ounce steak or whatever that is, that uh, they can put a relatively high value on and price on to their users and customers. Uh, the The big issue is, is there enough marbling to give it great flavor? Can we keep tenderness in that ribeye My personal concern is that as some of these ribeyes get bigger and bigger and these cattle get more muscular, that maybe the tenderness component of the muscle fiber isn't what it once was. And we don't have the data. I can't go anywhere right now and know where I could find data that would show me that, you know, where I could back up that thought. But I have that thought based on some of my own perceptions and some of the things that I've feel like I've seen in a steak that, you know, had had a fair amount of marbling, but when it was done and I tried to eat it, uh, it wasn't near as tender as what I think a lot of these steaks used to be, not that many years ago.
0: This episode is sponsored by the American Black Hereford Association. A Royal Affair sale at the Kansas City Royal is set for Saturday, October 8th. The annual membership meeting and dinner will follow that evening. The sale committee is currently accepting nominations, and you can find the rules at blackherford.org. Nominations are due by August 1st. The National Black Herford Open Show at the American Royal is the next day, Sunday, October 9th. If you have any questions, give Ernie a holler at 512-567-7840 or email him at ernie at blackherford.org. We're also sponsored by HI Slash Cattle Company. HI Slash Cattle produce registered Angus and Black Herford cattle with a focus on top-shelf Herford and Angus backgrounds. You can learn more about HI Slash Cattle at their website, h-i-s-l-a-s-h-cattle.org, or follow them on Facebook. This podcast could always use another sponsor to keep going. If you'd be interested in having your ad featured, give me a holler either on the Black Hereford Chronicles Facebook page or you can email me at H I S L A S H Cattle at gmail.com.
1: So, so I have I have some personal hang ups and concerns myself about some of these things, but I do know that I have not seen a negative impact to increasing marbling in these cattle today. I just haven't seen that, but I think I can get a negative impact by getting these cattle so heavy muscled that these ribeyes get bigger and bigger and the fibers gets tougher and tougher.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So switching directions a little bit to fertility and thinking about how fertility fits into EPD selection. Right now with the Black Hereford EPDs, scrotal circumference is our only fertility-based EPD, but they're reviewing kind of the EPDs right now and talking about um, improvements that can be made. So what other fertility EPDs do you think are important to consider and how should we look at EPDs and think about fertility?
1: Well, the most important thing for anybody that's in the cow-calf business. And by that, I mean, seed stock or registered, however you want to look at it, as well as commercial beef production. Fertility is without question the most highly rated trait to financial success and, and just profitability bottom line of a ranching operation that we deal with. Now, one of the traits that we've got in the Angus breed uh, that I believe wholeheartedly in is calving ease maternal. And I'm just shocked how few bull studs and producers pay attention to calving ease maternal. The bottom line is that it's a phenomenal fertility trait, in my opinion. The um, calving ease maternal is. The calving ease on the daughters of a bull as two-year-old females, and and how many, what percent unassisted at birth as a as a two-year-old? Well, that's going to tell you a whole lot about how fast that female gets healed up after she calves and gets her reproductive tract going again, so she'll re- re- rebreed in a timely fashion. And the more they rebreed in a timely order, the the more profitable they're gonna be in producing a calf every 11 to 12 months. Now, why did I say 11 to 12 months? Well, there's a lot of them might just drag on a little bit because they don't get back in shape to Mm rebreed. And that happens oftentimes when a calf's too big or there's difficulty calving. I think we've all seen it when you have a set of twins and there's a little more going on than just one natural calf. So we're not even talking about size of calves here. We're just talking about confusion at calving time in, in a cow's reproductive tract. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the bottom line is there that that does have an economic impact on your operation if they don't, you know, breed back in timely order. The value of that, as I mentioned it already, is just having that calf every year on a regular basis. And I've seen enough of this to where we've had cows over the years that had these calving ease, maternals on them that were extraordinary. And most of those calves out of a lot of those cows through their two, three, four, five-year-old cycle, most of them were bred back artificial insemination. Well, I know that if I could turn a bull out on those cows, I know full well how much more efficient that is and how much more likely you are to get those females bred back in that timely order that I'm talking about. But when you can do that AI and these cows are keeping a calving interval over four, five, six calves at anywhere close to 365 days, give or take 10 or 15 days. And I've seen the records and let's talk about that too. While we're, let's mention records. If you don't keep records and if you don't measure these things, you cannot improve them. You have no idea where you're at. And that's, that's the important part of tying EPDs into that is how you make progress. You don't do that without really good performance records.
0: So on a similar note then and I know this is kind of shifting gears a little bit but I would love to hear what your thoughts on whole herd reporting are. And just for anyone listening that's not really familiar with what that is, it's where producers are essentially filing a status report on every cow in their inventory annually. So did the cow calve, was assistance needed, if there's no calf why, dispersal, all that kind of stuff. And the benefit of that being that increased data on productivity. So what are your thoughts on whole herd reporting?
1: Well, you, you summed it up pretty well, and that is that there is, there's great value in it. Um, I, I think it's, it's a massive undertaking. And if you start asking a commercial man, say, well, that's what you should do. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's more of a seed stock situation to try to do the right things with these cattle genetically for that commercial customer. But I will tell you that it's, it's a phenomenal amount of work and it's very, very um, demanding to, to do that in the right way. And I do not like any process that's gonna take more labor and more time to get it done And when there's possibly an easier way to do it. Now, I don't don't know what the easier way is, but I just mentioned calving ease maternal. And that's a record that anybody can keep just by keeping their AI dates and their turnout dates and what have you. So even, even a good commercial operation can determine what their calving ease maternal is by when they turn bulls out when those things are calving, they have a very good idea roughly where they're at. They can at least do it in what I would call within a time period on all of the females in that herd that calve from the date of AI or turning bulls out to when the last in that group calves and which ones are outside of that range, that's acceptable to you. You can still do it in ways that it determines the cavities maternal of most of your cows. And that to me is a very economical trait that's extremely important. It has a lot to do with whole herd reporting and has a lot to do with stability in your cow herd. At the end of the day, if you just measure those, those parameters or those both sides of when you when these cows were first exposed to when the last calves are born and which ones are inside the acceptable scope and the ones outside. And you've basically started a whole herd reporting effort. And it's not that hard to do when you start looking at it in those terms, rather than identifying the cow went to town because she get bad feet, she go to town because she was mad or did she go to town because, uh, you know, she just one place or another slipped up and it's good to know those things. And there, that information easy enough to keep. I just think some of these programs that some of these breed associations came up with on whole herd reporting are not very, what I'd call functional Practicality, right? And I, I just believe that the, the the really good commercial herds that I've been in in my life, and the guys doing a great job, they have designed their own, I would call very practical means of recording certain things in those herds of cattle that have great meaning and great value to profitability and stayability. And some of them are, are really, you know, there's there's just little thing here or there that strikes me when I've seen it or have had somebody tell me about it, and uh, I think, wow, that's easy, and I like easy.
0: So right now, there's kind of a growing debate about terminal versus maternal cattle, with pressures that producers need to pick a lane. Do you think it's possible to balance those two and how can producers work towards achieving that balance?
1: Yes, to your to your main main question. I do think there's a balance, but maybe more importantly, um, I think the real way to answer that question is that I think that's a determination that each commercial producer should make for themselves. Do they want a terminal program or do they want a maternal program? And the reason I say that is I do not personally have a problem with terminal bulls. I think that once you go terminal and you you make that choice, then I think it's time to really sit down and understand what you're doing make sure that all the progeny that you produce at that point end up going to the feedlot. That's what terminal means. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have always seen in our calf crops that not every bull we raised was what I'd call a maternal bull. Some for either a reason or a combination of reasons from a standpoint of numbers and EPDs and the like, will tell you that they're more terminal or tend toward more terminal. And there's a home for all of them. And they all work at doing what they say they are. A terminal bull will give you more terminal product. And what you don't want to do is keep the daughters from a bull that just has more terminal traits to him. I think that, If I carry on here a little further, maybe I can explain some of that a little better because that can get a little confusing, I think, for some folks. But um, the maternal component is extremely important to anyone who's keeping their own replacement heifers. It's so difficult to go buy replacement heifers or to bring them in rather than raise them and come up with the same value. You just... I think it's almost impossible to go buy heifer replacements as a commercial producer and buy the kind that will make the cows that if you've done a good job of developing your cow herd over many, many years, your odds of success are far greater keeping your own replacement heifers. And so um, I believe that's important to understand right there. There's so much fallout if you go buy these females and you don't know what their genetic makeup is. You can buy a bunch of heifers that are very impressive, a uh, little larger framed, a little growthier. And by the way, those anytime they get a little bigger, a little larger framed, a little heavier muscle, they start tending toward terminal type cattle, not maternal type cattle, but terminal. So. They're the ones that look so nice and you think, ah, she's a great female. And then you try to put them in production. Next thing you know, she doesn't breed up like you'd want her to, even as a virgin heifer. And a few of these other things that are related to terminal traits start to creep in at different stages of her life. So that can become a real issue for people. And I, I think a lot of guys figured that out a long time ago in the commercial industry. And that's why a lot of people keep their own replacement heifers today. Is because they, they see more value in that and they realize they probably have less calls and less females fall through the cracks when they're trying to do the best job they can use very, very good bulls that the best thing to do is balance the traits. And there's so many people say, yeah, I believe in balanced traits. And then they go and pick some of these traits to an extreme that there's nothing balanced about it. And I, I I think we should all be very cautious of going down that road.
0: And I think at the end of the day for a lot of both commercial and seed stock operators, it's just about, Having spent the time to develop that vision, to know what it is that you're producing and why, and then marketing it appropriately. There's no right or wrong, but you have to know what it is you're doing and why you're doing it.
1: And Jennifer, that's exactly where I started out when I said there's nothing wrong with terminal cattle. It's You, you got to know, know it when you see it, know it when you do it, and then make sure they go to the, to the correct destination and go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to ask just to kind of switch up here a little bit as an Angus guy, you know, and we're, we're black Herford people. So I'd love to hear your opinion on this, what you think about and how you really value hybrid vigor and heterosis impacts on herds.
1: I think the old saying that I grew up with, and uh, I, you know, I've been in the registered or purebred Angus business basically my whole life, which is which is getting to be uh, I was in a meeting here just recently in Oklahoma City working with a, a group of young leaders in the Simmental Association. And of course, they have a lot of Sim Angus cattle in their breed today and predominantly black headed due to the Angus influence. It's incredible what they're doing in that deal. And I would share that it's very similar to me, the black Hereford deal has a lot of similarities in what they bring to the table in terms of heterosis and can be used that way, both maternally, carcass-wise and just stability. And I think one of the things that the Hereford cattle have always brought to this deal that I think Angus cattle have veered away from in the last 20 years, 25 years, is what I would call uh, real feed conversion. I I don't think there's any question that some of these long time Hereford cattle are um, very, very efficient at converting what you put in front of them. And I've seen some of that personally over the years to where. You can feed the same amount to a group of those and the same amount to another breed, another, you know, uh, or, or even more. And there may be a little left in that bunk after the Hereford cattle satisfied themselves. And I'm not saying you'll get the the exact same or even I like average daily gain out of it, but I'm just saying they gain quite efficiently with not as much feed put in front of them. And I think that feed efficiency is a new frontier in the cattle business. I think we don't know nearly enough about it yet. We don't know enough about the rumen that's in these cattle. It's totally different than a pig or a chicken that's single stomach, but It's unique to itself. And do we not only know enough about that rumen and the feed efficiency and the conversion, we don't know nearly enough about the rumen microflora and all those bacteria and fungi that operate in that rumen that help convert this feed, that help keep these animals, I believe, if they're really balanced correctly and if the hormones are right in these cattle, and that's a term I use a lot, but it's very difficult to explain. I think I can see it in a lot of these cattle. But when a a bull is really masculine and made like a bull should be, he does a lot of things that are absolutely right for the cattle business. And when a female is very feminine, very productive looking and does what a really good female should do in the industry, she does a lot of things that are right for profitability and success in the cattle business. And so the most masculine bulls that I've ever dealt with tend to sire the most feminine, productive females that I've ever worked with and vice versa. It's really, really difficult to have a great prepotent sire or bull. And by prepotent, I mean that really stamps his progeny with his likeness. And puts and, and just puts a lot of these really valuable economic traits into his progeny. And it's really difficult to find a sire that will do that if he's not out of a truly great, powerful, phenotypic mama cow. I, I would go so far as to say it's nearly impossible. And while we're talking some phenotypes here, the one thing I'd love to share with your audience, Jennifer, is chest floor in these cattle. The width through the floor of the chest, I refer to as the engine that drives everything else in in the beef cattle business. And I'll also say this, the width through the floor of the chest, in my opinion, is more highly correlated to ribeye area than the thickness through the center of the quarter. I, I'm I'm very convinced of that based on cattle. I've watched go through these feedlots and the cattle that we did when we did our carcass structure our, our evaluation work. There was no question in my mind. I would go look at these cattle in the in the lot when they were getting really close to going on the truck and taking a trip to harvest. And I would write down certain numbers and I'd look at the data when it come back on the individual animals. There is little to no doubt in my mind that that correlation exists and it's powerful.
2: Yeah, Bill, when you're talking about the, um, uh, prepotent sires, you know, I think that there's, um, a lot of looking at, uh, the female side too, you know, there's some legendary females out there and, and you know, and, and they're in every breed that, uh, <laughs> breed type and true on all, especially on their daughters. And um, there's some uh, studies coming out saying that that has to do with uh, the mRNA, the metabolic of our RNA that's inside of their uh, cells when because the ova that the cow passes on um, that stays in you know that's where the the engine of the cell structure is, and so it's the females that pass it on, not the sires, because the sperm doesn't carry any of that, and um, so you know, starting with a uh, a really typey and prepotent cow seems like a good way to push a lot of that kind of production forward if you're looking for that, in my opinion.
1: Well, I agree with that wholeheartedly, Logan. And the thing is, um, this chest floor, I got to the point to where I will look at the heifers and sort the replacement heifers on that chest floor because I found that I can raise females with that chest floor and when they produce a son by a desirable bull, that that son will he'll have big ribeyes if his hormones are right, because it's driven by masculine hormones. I believe that ribeye and muscle is a masculine hormone driven trait. I think marbling is more of a feminine, maternal driven trait, to be honest. Um, it just makes sense when you look at enough data and you have looked at enough cattle, enough records over the years, that that's kind of where they fall for me and my way of thinking. But what's interesting is the minute you have more chest floor, you have more heart girth that's right behind the elbow of the front leg. So it's a spring of rib. You have more spring of rib. And therefore, as you go back that entire body cavity, you're getting more thickness and more internal dimension and therefore bigger ribeyes. It makes total sense when you think about it. And so, uh, I I've just found that these females that have chest floor will put muscle in there without looking like, you know, like, like the old, um, female athletes. In in the Olympics years ago, that came out of some of these European countries.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of power to what you're saying, too, because I believe there's a lot of new breeders, people who are just getting into the industry that think that really all they've got to do is go out and buy the powerhouse bull. And they don't put a whole lot of thought into their females. You know, if they can throw the good bull out there, they'll be fine. And it's important to remind people that it it takes two.
1: You're absolutely correct there. Now, I will just back up a little bit and say, when it comes to your commercial customers, and I know you're talking about folks that are getting into seed stock. And uh, I agree with that. But when you get in the commercial business, the way to make progress with a commercial herd is always... Selecting the right replacement heifers, but maybe most important of all is every single calf that they produce, 50% of the genetic makeup comes from the sire. And that's why the bull buying is so incredibly important in the commercial industry. And uh, we shouldn't ever lose sight of that massive influence of a sire on a commercial man's calf crop.
0: Absolutely. Well, Bill, I think that you have shared a lot of knowledge with us today and I could not be more grateful that you were willing to come on and talk about all of this. You've been doing this for so long that you definitely have a deep, deep knowledge base. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well,
1: it's a pleasure for me to be with you and Logan today. And, uh, it's good to have you in the great state of Nebraska.
0: Well, we're excited to be here. There's grass and water. It's amazing yeah. how much of a difference that makes.
1: I, I, think, I think about it ever since I knew you guys were moving. And I think about the time I made the trip west and I was up on the top of the mountain in Colorado at your place. And my goodness, those cattle were in good shape and surviving and doing the right things in a really really rugged country yeah <laughs> so i i just can imagine i i think lots of times about what they call it metamorphosis you know when a daggone butterfly hatches and turns into this beautiful beautiful insect and uh i can't imagine the metamorphosis in uh What some of these cows that you guys own have done since they've come to this environment? First of all, not fighting all the pressures of high altitude and all of those things that can be an extra stress on livestock. But uh, yeah, it's it's got to be fun to see what they'll do now.
0: Well, we were just impressed that none of them dropped dead from shock when they unloaded off the truck and saw all the grass.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well. That's, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yes, Good problems to have.
1: <laughs> tell, tell you what, when, when the hormones are right in these cattle, they seem to do a lot more things right in the, in the right way for you. And I wish there was a way to really measure that, but I've talked to a lot of scientists and I haven't come up with one yet. So I'll just keep doing it the old fashioned way, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Bill.
1: You guys take care. You too. Yep.
0: Thanks for listening. You can get in on the conversation over at our Facebook page at Black Herford Chronicles, where we'd love to hear from you. Of course, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.